you all for coming. Good morning. Happy New Year. There's got to be a greeting that will elicit some response. And I'll take whatever I can get. Well, this morning, we begin a new year and we begin a new series as we study together through the book of Exodus. Now, we're doing two different things here, and I want you to wrap your minds around it. So the first thing is we're going through the book of Exodus together, and the theme is on finding home, and we're going to talk about that later. But the second thing that's happening is we're also going through the book of Exodus at the same time as our middle hour class, which is called the Gospel Project. That's at 10 a.m. That's been going. They started it in Genesis chapter 1 back in September. They're in Exodus now. We're joining them. And then at the end of this series, we'll begin Lent in anticipation of Easter, and they will keep going through, uh, I think, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I can't remember which order they're doing it all in. But this morning, we begin Exodus, and they have a distinct advantage of an hour-long class, uh, and we have, you know, 20, 30 minutes in here. So we have to do a little bit less than what they cover. We're going to be in chapters 3 and 4 this morning. But what I want to talk to you about first is this theme of the new... You see the graphic on your bulletin. It's up on the screens. This idea of finding home. And so, uh, first we need to define what home is. Now, home is not merely a place of residence, right? Someone, you can have an address, but not have a home in the sense, the fullest sense of the word. And I was trying to think of an example of this. Now, this one might seem trivial because I've never really had it that bad, but this is just from my own life. I know other people have it worse. I'm going to caveat that as much as I can. Please hear what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But when I left Cincinnati in 2013, I moved to St. Louis to start graduate school. And I didn't have a lot of money. I was coming from a church job, anticipating a lifetime of church jobs. And I didn't have a lot of funding. So I thought, you know, an apartment is like 650, 700 bucks a month in St. Louis plus utilities. And, you know, then I like eating uh, multiple times a day if possible. So then I thought, what can I do? And I found uh, on this classified ad a woman who was willing to rent out her basement uh, to a seminary student for $400 a month. And that included all utilities. And I was like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. And it was only seven minutes from the school. So I moved in there. And uh, I don't want to ruin the state of Missouri for you, but they have several uh, critters and things that crawl that I was not familiar with in Cincinnati. And one of them, now I didn't have this in my house, are these things called wolf spiders. If you just Google that, it will haunt your dreams. For So don't do it. Don't do it after 5 p.m. Don't Google that. Um, but my pastor in St. Louis, his family had an infestation of wolf spiders. So anytime they like moved furniture, they would have one of these, and they're like this big, and they're hairy. And they had so many of them that their toddler, who was like three or four, would just squash them with her hand. That's how used to them they got. And I was like, you know, I hope the Lord calls me out of Missouri before I get accustomed to squashing wolf spiders with my hand. Um, but what I did have are... Crickets. Now, I've only seen crickets really, you know, you hear them at night and you see them in Disney animated shorts and they seem, you know, wise and sage-like. Um, and that's not my experience with crickets in Missouri. They were about this big, three or four inches a piece, very large crickets. And in my first month of living in this woman's basement, 
I carried a two-by-four with me, to, and I killed at least a 100 of them in the first month. And they didn't go away. And she, you know, I reported this to her and was like, hey, can we do anything about this? And she's like, what's the problem? You can kill them, right? And I was like, I can. Yeah, I really didn't think it was a matter of whether I was able to kill them or not. Uh, but then, I, you know, I killed some of those after moving in, and I was tired, and I laid down. And uh, the basement was, you know, finished, and they had drop ceiling, you know, with the tiles. And I heard, like, this scampering in the ceiling. And then one day, when I was in the bathroom, a mouse fell out of the ceiling while I was going to the bathroom, which was really convenient in one way and really horrifying in another way. And it ended up, I stuck my head up there once, and there was not one mouse, there were a colony of mice. And uh, all the things that mice leave behind. So, uh, all that to say, I had an address. I had somewhere to go to park my car, to rest my head, but for some reason I never felt at home. And so it pushes a little bit at the definition of what home is. And home, by most definitions, requires three components. Now, you can add to this list, but it's no less than this. We can all agree on these three. The first, a place of physical safety, roof over your head, protected from the elements. You can't have a home unless you have that. Second is an emotional haven, a place to feel comfort and peace. I did not have that in this particular experience. And the third is this, a place with family. Now, family, in any sense of the word, whether it's your biological family, whether it's loved ones, extended family, uh, friends who have become like family, you know, fellow uh, Christians who are in the family of God with you, which, you know, Paul says runs deeper than blood. Um, but you have to have those three things. You have to have physical safety, emotional haven, place to feel comfort and peace, and some sense of family around you. Now, when we look at the book of Exodus, as we'll be doing, we find the people of God in captivity, enslaved in Egypt. So, we notice that they have the absence of at least one of the things on that list. They may have a physical place to stay, but they don't have emotional haven. They don't have a place of comfort and peace. And they do have a sense of family and camaraderie together, but for some reason, and I think it's pretty obvious, they don't feel at home. So it has created this sense of longing for home. And, you know, the Exodus, uh, most of us are vaguely familiar with the story, whether it's from Christian Bale or Charlton Heston. Uh, it's Christian Bale did the new one, right? That's not Russell Crowe. That's Noah. Okay, never mind. Um, yeah, or Disney, Prince of Egypt. There you go. So most of us are vaguely familiar with the story, and they move into this homeland that God has promised them. But Exodus is the story of that finding home. And so... Uh, we're going to cover that. It's about the people of God finding home, both in the book of Exodus, but also in our day and age. Many Christians in our time get the sense that this world that we live in, in its current state, does not provide the necessary elements of home for a Christian. Uh, now, if you're thinking of the American experience, you might think in ways in which, you know, Christians uh, can be marginalized at times, but if you go to other countries of the world, other parts of the world, you will definitely see the case that it does not meet the criteria of finding home, finding that rest, finding that safe haven. 
Uh, and in fact, it's not just Christians who don't have this perfect sense of home, but it's even those outside the church. It was a couple years ago, and I didn't think this would ever happen, didn't even know it could happen, but the Surgeon General issued a health warning uh, in, the, in the United States because there was what he described as an epidemic of loneliness. Have you ever heard loneliness referred to as an epidemic? Now, does anyone want to contest that? You know, we get in, we, whether we're experiencing it ourselves. In fact, Cigna, one of the healthcare providers, did a study because they said, okay, well, we want to know how broad this problem is. And they conducted a massive nationwide study to see how prominent loneliness and depression that come from loneliness are. And it was 50% of Americans. So that means, statistically speaking, if you're not struggling with loneliness and depression, the person next to you right now is. Statistically speaking. So, we've got this problem of loneliness, and loneliness, in a sense, is one of the things that indicates our lack of really feeling at home somewhere. Feeling that sense of community, that sense of family, that emotionally safe haven where we can rest, and a physical place of safety. So, we're going to look at how God provides that for his people in Israel and how God provides that for us in our day and age. And here's the spoiler is ultimately all of these requisites are provided in their most meaningful form by God himself. Now notice that what I didn't say, I didn't say in the stuff God can give you. It's God himself. God the person is the one who we find our deepest sense of home in, and not just as individuals, but as a group of people, we find our sense of home, our sense of belonging, our sense of security and comfort and our family in the most meaningful sense of the word in God himself. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word and your faithfulness through the ages. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would show us uh, what it is you want to teach us today from the book of Exodus And we just pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive uh, that which you have said and that which you are still saying to your people. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, it will be on the screens. I will read it to you. And if you feel like opening your pew Bibles, leave them open. We have three different readings this morning. Uh, But it's going to be in Exodus chapter 3. And the thing that I want you to notice here before we start reading is that God is fully aware of the suffering and oppression, and he responds to it because he is good and just. So, chapter 3, starting in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned uh, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. I can do that two more times, because we have two more readings. So be ready. But the first thing we want to notice here is that God hears his people. God hears the concerns, the cries. And so what we learn here, and this is an important lesson, God does not shy away from the painful realities of this world or the suffering that the people in this world endure. Even if sometimes the church and Christians do. Sometimes we don't want to deal with the messy side of life, with the suffering of other people. We just want to try to spiritualize it and say, well, you know, you just need to pray more. Just be more heavenly minded. Stick your head up, you know, in the heavens and don't worry about what's happening on the ground. But that's not what God does. God sees it and he cares about it and he responds to it. And it's interesting to note that he uses the past tense when he says, I have seen the oppression of Egypt. Now, they were being oppressed at the moment, so he could have said, I am seeing the oppression, but he said it in past tense, I have seen it, which means when they prayed to God, it's not news to him. Meaning, he's not off doing his own thing, worrying about something else, and then he hears this prayer come from his people in Egypt, and he's like, oh my, what a mess over there. It's not how God works. He's fully aware of it, and when his people pray, he is ready to respond. And the lesson here for us is that means when we pray, when we come to God, we can go with confidence knowing two things. One, that our situation is familiar to God. Nothing we can tell him is news to him, yet he invites us to share that with him. And the second thing is that he is not indifferent towards our situation. He cares deeply about what goes on in the lives of his people, and he is ready to respond. And later we'll have healing stations in the service where we can bring our prayer requests to God. And every week after the service, we have someone standing by this door who is ready to pray with people in the prayer room. So we have this constant invitation to bring our concerns before God. It's not like we set aside just one time of the year or something like that where we do that. So as we continue reading, it's going to be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. And this is a big one and a very familiar passage for uh, many of us. Starting in verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, what happens in this passage here is God is increasing 
not only the relationship with Moses, but the relationship with people of God for all time, which spans even into this church building today. And so what he's done here is, first of all, he identifies his past. Now, how many of you have gone to at least one session of the Gospel Project? Okay, that's a good number of hands. So, you have sat through at least part of Genesis. And the stories that outline Genesis are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's very significant when God says to Moses, here's my identity, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Each one of those names recalls a very specific story of God's power and God's faithfulness. And he's saying what was done for them is the same God who you are conversing with right now. And it's the same God that we pray to when we pray. But he goes even further than that. God gives him a name by which to call him. Now there's two ways to approach this, and I think they're actually both correct. The first, as a lot of people see this uh, name in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now if you have a Bible that has footnotes, uh, it might suggest, here's a couple other translations, I am what I am, I will be what I will be, and uh, these are all kind of getting at the same idea. Now that this is the first sense of the, the name here is the meaning is that I am who I am. And it's a play kind of on the Hebrew word that means to be or is or are. God is saying, you know, he, I am who I am. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. He's transcendent. He's eternal. He exists outside of time and space. And in that way, the name captures that. But it's not just that. It's not... Now, see, can you imagine if Moses, you know, comes all the way up this mountain to see a burning bush, and then he says, God, who are you? You know, tell me your name. And God responds with a philosophical treatise on his transcendent transcendent nature. Now, if you read a lot of study Bibles and commentaries, that's what they'll tell you happened. And it, it did happen, in a sense. But that's not all that happened. He didn't just say, uh, here's a philosophical puzzle for you. I am who I am. Go figure that out. And uh, I think Moses would have been a little disappointed. But instead, what we get is the name of God the Father. Now, it's common for most of us growing up in the church to refer to God the Father as just God. But God is just a noun. It's not a name. And, you know, we have Jesus has a name, but God the Father we frequently just call God. And that would be like if I just referred to Drew as human. Which is true, um, and he's been called worse. <laughs> but human is the noun, and it's true, I can address him as a human, but it makes more sense to, it's more personal to address him by his name. And God's name is given here, uh, you'll frequently see it in English, without vowels, as Y-H-W-H. Now there's an interesting history here, and I think it's important because we're talking about the name of God. And if there's a passage in the Bible to talk about the name of God, I think this is it. This is the one where he gives it to us. Now it's used for the rest of the Bible. But this has been pronounced different ways over the years. The consensus now is that it's pronounced Yahweh. How many of you have heard Yahweh before? Now there's an interesting thing here. Now I think it's interesting, which might say more about me than the passage. But there came a point in Jewish history when uh, they got the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and one of them says, do not take the Lord's name in vain, right? And so they were worried when they saw Yahweh in the text, 
They said, well, I don't want to take his name in vain. I don't want to mispronounce it. I don't want to mishandle it. So we're just kind of build a fence around it. And so every time the word Yahweh appears in the text, I'll say the word Adonai, which means Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in fact, that's how it is carried over to your English translation in most cases. Uh, but something interesting happened when it came over from Hebrew to other languages. People took the uh, letters of Yahweh, because the Hebrews didn't write with vowels, and then they substituted in the vowels from Adonai and came up with this pronunciation, Jehovah, which is a mispronunciation of God's name. Um, but it's one that we've heard throughout the ages, and we're not uh, trying to turn our nose up at anyone here, but God reveals his name. In fact, he invites us to call him by his name. And I know that for me, when someone... Uh, if somebody wants to bring me up on stage and sing my praise and give me accolades and then introduce me and then they pronounce my last name Jorgensen. It's Jorgensen, by the way. But when they pronounce it Jorgensen, that undercuts the accolades a little bit. I'm like, wow, you knew a lot about me, but you didn't know how to say my name. And that it stings a little bit. Now, God's not as petty as I am. And he can deal with telemarketers better than I can, probably. But... Uh, I think it's important that as we worship, we recognize what is being done here. God is giving his personal name. And you'll see this in your English Bibles. What most translations do, they explain it in the, the fine print at the beginning that almost no one reads. But they tell you how they show that in the English text. If you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's showing you that it's using God's name, Yahweh, in the text. Now, if it's Lord that's lowercase, there's just the word Adonai there. But if you see it in all capital letters, which you will see for the rest of the book of Exodus, in fact, you even see it in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, it just says, God did this, God did this, God did this. But in chapter 2, it starts saying, Yahweh God, Yahweh God. And that's when he starts relating with people. That relationship comes into play. And so we see that God has given us his name, and this is not a pointless or petty academic point. This is... Uh, the difference between referring to God as, or referring to a person as uh, human and referring to a person by their name. And so God giving us his name shows his special desire for a relationship. So while we're not to take it in vain, we should use it freely when reading and studying the Bible. And see, a lot of people think that this idea of God wanting to be in relationship with humanity is new in the New Testament. But that's not what's new about the New Testament. There are new things in the New Testament. There's a new covenant there. But this idea of God wanting to be in relationship with his people is found throughout the pages of Scripture from the very beginning. He's in relationship with Adam and Eve. They walk in the garden. And with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and now with Moses, he discloses his personal name. And so one commentator sums it up, and I think this is capturing both elements of the name of God. He says this, uh, the name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Thus, both the Lord of creation and history, all that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. So he's a personal God who is active uh, both in the past, the present, and the future. And so we get this picture of God and we start to understand him more clearly and then we see God become a main character in the book of Exodus. And so he doesn't wind Moses up and send him off to do his bidding, but God is actively participating all throughout the story. And so now we move to our final passage, which is 
Exodus 4, verses 1 through 5. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And so what happens here, first of all, we should note that God is aware of our situation. He is open and ready to respond to our prayers. Yet when someone points out a problem to God, Moses brings this problem up to God, and God's solution is putting it in Moses' hands. So be careful what you complain about because there's a good chance you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and get involved in it. Now Moses responds like most of us do. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but grabbing a snake by the tail is not the best way to handle a snake. Uh, I used to watch Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, and it's like him and Moses are the only people that I know that would pick up a snake by the tail. That's not how you do it, but that's what he does, and not because Moses is a gifted snake handler, but because God is protecting him, God is performing miraculous works, that uh, he is uh, not in harm's way. And so God's, the problem here though, is that Moses says, well, I'm not really qualified to go, you know, fix things, do this, do that. And now, in America, in the church, even as a pastor, you know, even myself, my temptation when people come to me with a lack of confidence is to give them more confidence in themselves. Right? Say, oh no, you can do that. I'm going to empower you. That's not what God does, actually. God doesn't give Moses more confidence in himself, as many of us are tempted to do, but God's answer to Moses is to give Moses more confidence in God. He says, Moses, you didn't turn that staff into a snake. I did that. And you're going to do a bunch of signs just like that. And so he shows that he has the power and the willingness to help. And by showing these signs, God is not willing to be a passive observer. In Exodus. He doesn't say, I'm just going to hand off all the tools you need and send you off, but I'm going to actively be doing all of these signs as they are done. God has now entered into the story, and it doesn't fare well for the Egyptians going forward. And so God is going to be active in the deliverance of his people. And so, in our lives, some of us may not have the confidence to share our faith with others. Now, we may have encountered this even in Advent, when we were asked to go invite people to come into our church, people to come join us for Christmas, come join us for Advent, and we thought, well, you know, I'm not really qualified in that. And the message to you this morning is that, yeah, you're probably not. And Moses wasn't really qualified to turn a staff into a snake. But God, the God who you represent, the God who you are sharing, is powerful enough to do that. He is where your confidence should lie. And if you're not sure about Christianity yet, and you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, the greatest demonstration of God's power and our source of confidence is the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, who died to take on and deliver us from the ultimate oppressor, which is sin and human wickedness. And so we see in this passage that because God has delivered us from the oppression of sin through Christ, we ought to be conscious of the plight of the oppressed in our world and seek justice for all who show and share the love of God. Now, 
That's a big statement. That means that if God is not indifferent towards the suffering and the oppression of many people, or of all the people in this world, then that means if we're his followers and we care about the things God cares about, what can we not afford to overlook? Oppression, wickedness, evil, in any form. There's no area of human experience that is off limits to Christ's work on the cross. Christ's redemption redeems us from uh, oppressions in the past and future oppressions that we've not even seen yet and ones in our present age. There are people in this city, in this country, in this world who experience oppression every single day. And we cannot turn a blind eye to it. We cannot simply spiritualize and overlook it. And in fact, if we notice it, guess whose hands God will put it in to work on. And that's why as a church, we see the sin and wickedness that happens in our uh, in our culture and in our society, and we've chosen to bind together and become a multi-ethnic community that stands in the face of what has gone wrong in this country for centuries. And so, we sh- we uh, exp- and we don't do that by ourselves. That's something that we can only do through the power of Jesus Christ on the cross, who broke down all the barriers between humans and humans. And so. As we think about this series, this finding a home, whether it is someone outside the church who is lonely and struggling and looking for community, whether it is you who are sitting here and you're thinking of all the ways that you need God in your life, and whether you're missing love or comfort or security or the family that uh, you feel that, you, know, you need around you at all times, those are provided only through God himself and through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ and now manifested in the presence of his church. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness through